You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi there, Sasha. Hi, Stella. So... Today we're going behind the curtain yet again and we kind of very much focused, I believe, really on the initial stages of therapy with the gender questioning or a gender distressed young person. And now we want to get into the meat of it, the middle stage, which is really where all the therapy happens. The first stage and the end stage have their place, but the meat is really is really in the middle when you've got to know the the young person, you have a good alliance with them and you're trying, if you're like me as a therapist, I'd be very interested to know yours. But for me, it's when I, I kind of flick out in quite, I would argue, a quite nonchalant way, will we try this? And it's very suck it and see. I don't tend to kind of, I know CBT, I, you know, I did actually did a master's in CBT and you could really pump up your strategies because you have to get buy-in. But that's not really how I go at it. So that's what we're going to discuss today. And um, what are what are your kind of initial thoughts on the, the middle stage? Well, I mean, I think so, some of the, the other episodes coming up for me too, because, I mean, first thing is that as we've been discussing, this is individualized therapy, which means there isn't really a specific protocol that we're using. You know, over the years, I might be able to look back and think, well, generally I approach it this way or that way. But most of the time, each kid is so unique and so different that the middle of therapy across various clients is going to look really different. So I'm thinking about the fact that some kids come to therapy with very rigid and fixed mindsets, while others are actually very curious and they want to go deep and they want to open things up. And that presents a certain kind of um, challenge in terms of how quickly or how deeply therapy can move depending on who your client is. Even if you've built really good rapport, that doesn't necessarily mean the child will stop having a highly fixed perception of what gender means, right? So that's really important is just being able to accurately kind of feel your way through the relationship with the client and and get a sense of what is appropriate at this next stage. And some kids come to therapy because their parents are bringing them. And in a way, there's a power struggle as they walk in the door. They're going to prove to you that they are really trans, as they would say themselves. And the parent is bringing them to prove otherwise. And that's a, a couldn't be more awkward position to be put in as a therapist. And I, I, you know, the job of the first stage is to lose that position. That's right. Yeah. And to kind of align yourself with the client and to figure out, you know, as you once, it was lovely when you said it, let's take, let, let me take your hand and let's look at this from a bird's eye view. And it's, it's a lovely way of kind of, let's, let's just have a look at this. Let's just have a look at the totality of the person, the individual in the holistic sense. 
And that's where I think I really feel I take their hand in the middle bit that we've we've connected. We're shoulder to shoulder and they come in each week and it's like, how's it been? How are you? In, in, there's a lovely phrase. I know you might know it, actually, because it's from the Middle East, as far as I know. And I don't know what the actual the language is, but it says, how's your hal? As in, how is how is your heart at this moment? And that's how I kind of feel when they walk in. That's where I'm at. Like, how how is your hal? How how are you? How is your heart beating right now? That's and that, that's where I'm. It's kind of my favorite part of the therapy. It's where I'm at my most authentic. That we're the two of us are shoulder to shoulder, connecting with their deeper self. And they might say something, and I'd say, "Oh, but I wonder." And we look at it a different way. And it's kind of rolling around the ideas of of who they are, what makes them distressed, what makes them better. And it's it's a lovely place to be in therapy because they know where it's going and I know where it's going. It's it's exploring the person. Yeah. But obviously I've given an idealized view and there's all sorts of roadblocks you can hit on the way. But when it's going well, it's it's the it's the kind of it's the magic in the process at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's important to communicate that you are here with the client and you are, you kind of have their back and that you're there to be with them and, and empathize with their experience. And of course, by the time you've reached this meaty stage of therapy, you, you also have the leverage to be able to reflect some things you know about the client. So I, I find myself to kind of drill down into a technique I find myself always kind of tucking away things that a client has said in my back pocket. And so I know that if they are, let's say, I'm trying to think of a good example. I can think of one. Okay, what's one? Um, Well, very common would be they might have said, oh, I thought I was a lesbian, but I'm not. And I go, okay, Put that in my back pocket at some point when we're talking about the sexual self. But sorry, I jumped yeah, in. No, totally. I think that's a great example. So let's take that. So I might say, you know, if a client is now, you know, questioning another aspect of their identity, I might start, I always start with a kind of validating comment. And I might say, hmm, it sounds like right now you're getting interested in, in wondering about this aspect of yourself. That sounds important. And I'm also remembering six months ago when you felt really strongly about your identity and then something shifted. I think that's really interesting. Do you think that might be part of the process here too? And so that's that's a great example, Stella, of how when you get to know a client and you also trust the process of growing up and development, you don't have to... uh, get too rigid about what you're seeing and you know there will come an opportunity where I can loop this back in and it's a very gentle process yeah I think that it's a very skill skill a lot of skill is reliant on this bit because if you're not careful it turns into a gotcha and in the wrong it doesn't happen within a therapeutic context what you and I were just talking about. However, you said it to your friend or if your parents said it to you, <laughs> it would be a gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. And that's where we get away with so much more as therapists because we can do it in that lovely atmosphere of the therapeutic room that n- nobody else would get away with that. They'd go like, oh, you bring that up. But when you're genuinely 
you've made your kind of established relationship with them, they know you're on their side. And they know that. They'll understand this isn't a gotcha. This is a a broadening of my perspective of me. It's just checking every nook and cranny of me. I remember um, one girl saying uh, that, and she said it in such a throwaway way, oh, um, cis white girl is the worst thing to be. And that was one of those like, and you know, of course I could have taken it up at that moment and said, what do you mean by that? And that's your instinct. But in the therapeutic space, you just think, oh, that's definitely something that at the right time is something we should explore to expand this person's psyche. It's not a quick answer retort, which is what we do when we're having a coffee or they're in your kitchen and you're the parent. And that's that's the golden magic, I think, of therapy, that it is a very different space like no other. So I am that quick retort, as anybody would know, when I'm not in therapy. Yeah. But in therapy, it's such a softer place. Really. Yeah. I think that's a great example, too. I'm I'm also thinking about how you might pick up on these bigger picture patterns. I mean, you're talking about a few very specific kind of identity things. But I'm thinking about how you, you might know, for example, after working for some time with a client, that they have a tendency to... Uh, let's say, assume that other people don't like them or they have a lot of social anxiety. And so you might kind of inadvertently work on that by, you know, if they bring up a new scenario of something that has recently happened between themselves and a friend or or some kid they know, you might bring that in and say, look, I, I know that one thing that's been challenging for you is... Um, you know, kind of how you talk to yourself about interactions with people or feeling like you have to make yourself small. Let's talk about how that showed up here in this example. One thing I found really has really resonated with clients um, is when I start talking about a harsh inner voice, they, 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 I find they lighten up and they're very engaged when I start talking about that. And it reminds me often of people who have eating disorders often have a very harsh, almost spiteful, critical, self-critical in a very harsh way. And I find when I bring up the harsh inner voice, that's something that people with gender distress really relate to. And so I give an awful lot of room to the harsh inner voice. And we talk about the harsh inner voice and expand upon it and it, it becomes its own entity. Let's talk about the voice, you know what I mean? Because... It's, I think it's a really, a really significant element of what could be sometimes construed on some clients as a self-loathing. Yeah. That they're just, at, they're like death by a thousand cuts. They're just at each other. And I find when I'm in the middle stage in, in therapy, I, my focus often is their relationships, whether it's their relationships in the parents or their siblings or their friends. And I find it's between the harsh inner voice and the relationships is where they're sliding. And they're in very, generally very difficult places, even if they've loads of friends, but they're in very difficult places socially. Yeah. I want to touch on the harsh inner voice just in one more way. I think these days, because there's so much focus on mental health, which has its positives and negatives, a lot of kids will know that it's not good to be mean to yourself. You know, if they start talking about the harsh inner voice, there's sometimes this reflexive desire to say, I know I shouldn't do that, but blah, 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 and blah. And what I try to do in those moments is say, okay, let's, let's actually 
not judge yourself yet. And sometimes I'll say, look, you're not crazy. You're not being mean to yourself because you want to harm yourself. There might be a a purpose of why you act that way, even though it's not helpful. So I think, I mean, I I can't speak for you, but I think part of the, the benefit of a depth psychology perspective is to remain really, really curious about everything the client is bringing to you. So sometimes that harsh inner voice stems from let's say the the earlier experience of realizing that it's possible someone might bully you or pick on you or make fun of you so the harsh inner voice is an attempt to protect yourself before someone else calls you out so even that maladaptive pattern is an attempt to do something that has a positive impulse, which is maybe you're trying to protect yourself from being in an embarrassing situation. And then I think for me, the next step is it's also completely human to be in embarrassing situations sometimes. So you can't hide behind the harsh inner voice forever because then you will just disappear in a way. So I think there's always room to be curious about what a client is bringing to you. Yeah, it really rings true when you say that they they know about mental health. And I find a lot of them are quite, there's quite a lot of, of, you could call it cognitive dissonance, certainly two two thoughts are, are with them because they often say, I'm a happy type or, I'm I'm quite I'm quite you know I roll with it and then they might within the same session say I I'm you know I'm I was devastated and I'm lonely and and so they're often projecting you know because these days to be a success equals to be happy they they kind of have to project this to the world and it, they they really they're really I think they're really critical about their mental health because they know mental health should be looked after. And so they're very critical about the fact that they're not happy. It's not, and you know, it's not enough to be depressed. You're depressed about your depression. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to be anxious. You're anxious about your anxiety. I, I, and it, it really, really becomes, uh, I find they swing between admitting their distress and also a little bit of, I'm just a happy-go-lucky person and I'm rolling with it. And then they might come back a little bit and say, you know, actually, it was really difficult. I think it's really, really hard on them. Yeah. And, you know, it's also so, so, so normal for teenagers in particular to have emotional roller coasters kind of plowing through their life all the time. And so I love that. I yeah. find myself very often just humanizing. Yes, you you got really upset and cried, but because, you know, sometimes parents will say, oh, you should talk to your therapist about that. Every time the kid has, which I understand. I mean, it's true. That's what I'm there for. But there's this kind of subtle message that is permeating, I think, all of our culture right now, which is that huge emotional distress means something is wrong. And so I find myself almost constantly listening, empathizing, and saying all of this is human. It's totally human. Sometimes I'll joke and I'll say, congratulations, you are not a robot. You have feelings, you know, with the right client and then the right moment, right? But I think it's important for young people to know that that is very normal. 
Yeah, I think you're so right. Normalizing it, I find, is a revelation to clients. They literally, their their face brightens when they really start to believe to you that it's normal because you they kind of, they unfurl during the therapeutic process. And at the beginning, you get the beginning bit. And then in the middle, they're literally saying, they're showing you themselves, literally like exposing themselves. They're just letting you in and just saying like, I think I'm nuts. But uh, And then you say, yeah, no, you're you're just exactly the way you should be. Yeah, everything right there. And you can see them, they're, they're so almost thrilled to have it normalized. It's I, I feel they feel that they're big, dark, difficult thoughts are some terrible rot inside them. It's extraordinarily almost religious the way they approach their their what they would call their negativity, what you and I would call a kind of existential realization of the, the horrors of life that we come. We don't know where we're born. We don't know why we die. We don't know what happens in the middle. We don't know where our grandfather and where they go after they die. And they are coming to this realization and they think it's negative thoughts as opposed to it's a realization of the the horror of the world and the greatness of the world. And it's it's their coming of age. Yeah. And I think they really, really respond to being normalized as opposed to their very dark thoughts, you should check that out with your therapist. And I really think you're right when you when you lifted that, because I think we've pathologized all distress. And so, so much distress is go to the professionals with it, rather than let's have a cup, cup of tea and talk about it. And I, I think a lot of parents, well, I shouldn't say a lot, and I shouldn't generalize, and I know I tend to, but parents often try to show their children, I do it to my own kids, their best side and I've told my kids a few times just a couple of sad small sad stories the tiny tips of my sad childhood and each time they've looked at me in slight horror like really you know a bad thing happened to you and I'm like oh my god (laughs) and I think us parents we tend to not tell our kids that and the lack of authenticity becomes gaping during the adolescent years oh my gosh this is so important There's so many things coming to my mind, but I want to touch on a few. So first of all, I do see that sometimes in families, when I'm consulting with them, if there's been some kind of, you know, difficult period of time, which there is for every family, I can hear parents say, so-and-so went on between me and my husband, but my kids, we, we didn't let them know about any of it. They had no idea. Or my, my mother was really ill, but I think I shielded my kids well from that. And there's a really good intention here. And I think it's correct that parents shouldn't burden their children with being their emotional confidant. But kids need to understand and know that ups and downs and difficulty and pain and turbulence is a part of life and actually never stops being a part of life because life can be very hard sometimes. And, um, you know, this is making me also think about is sometimes kids who are really systematic thinkers and who have really intense emotions, like I'm thinking sometimes this happens on the autism spectrum, they don't understand why they're having such a strong emotional reaction to things. And they want to understand. And so there can be a tendency to not only have the big emotion, but then to have the self-blame, which you alluded to earlier, like anxiety about the anxiety. 
And, you know, sometimes when it's appropriate in therapy, I will share like a self-disclosure of something that's very irrational. You know, like one example is that, you know, after having seen some scary movie as a child to this day, if the lights are off and I'm alone, I'll have this image of this creepy thing from a movie, you know? Do you? Yeah, still. Yes. I have this, like there's certain, for me in like scary movies, if there's like a distorted face, that really bothers me. Jump scares, I don't really care about like other things, but distorted looking ghosts or whatever scare me a lot. So anyway, I mean, I shared a disclosure like that with somebody and I saw in, in the client's face, like all of a sudden, oh, it's okay to have an irrational fear, for example. doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. And, and I find myself continuously, you know, telling parents that it's okay to let your child know about some, some aspects in an age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate way. It's okay for your child to know that there is a struggle, And that's it, because I think there's been parents before, certainly it's well known in Ireland, the kind of the martyr Irish mother, and she unloaded all her my terrible life on her children. And so parents these days let kids be kids and we we don't unload anything. And I don't think we unload is the right word, but we've gone way beyond not unloading to fakery. Because I even, I took my husband up on it today because something came up and I said, you should tell our children about X. And he looked at me like, I, I can't. And, you know, I said, no, like, why would I? Uh, best foot forward. <laughs> and actually, when you don't divulge, you're, you're making yourself a little bit colder. So when I choose to tell you, Sasha, something about myself, you know, that's me offering a deeper bond of friendship. It's a, I will be a little bit vulnerable and we will know each other better. It's a, it's a very, it's a very, you know, warm inducing thing to do. And parents aren't doing it out of a sense of love, but something is getting missing. And I, I'm glad you're saying you have to balance it. You can't just sit at the end of their bed and say, right, <laughs> let me tell you about your yeah, dad. Yeah, yeah. Nothing like that. So it has to be done gently, but definitely I think what really works with teenagers um, is stories from your own teenagehood. I really do. Like when you were lost and lonely and you were 13 and they're 13 and it's a genuine story and you're not making it up and you're not saying, because I find parents tell their kids about the best friend they had and the great time when they scored a goal against all odds, but they don't tell them the sad little isolated story which didn't end well. They don't tell them. And I think they have a huge piece of, of gold in them that it normalizes distress for their distressed kid. And I'd like to say, since we're on this topic of normalizing distress, there's something really unfortunate and understandable that is often discussed with the rhetoric around ROGD. And that is kids who develop gender dysphoria often have a lot of mental health issues. And when I hear that, I think, yeah, and... They're also, in some ways, really, really normal teenage kids. It almost, the, the way ROG is, GD is discussed, it almost makes it sound as though the only kids afflicted with this are some, you know, really unusual, hard to relate to, almost psychotic children running around when that's not yeah. at all the case. 
These are often incredibly deep, profound, uh, intelligent kids who are kind of like mismatched with their time and environment in a way. Like, like I think it's really hard to be a very deep and sensitive kid in today's particular kind of social climate. So I would like to destigmatize ROGD pre-existing, in quotes, mental health issues a little bit. Does that make sense? Oh, here's your sister. Yes. I find that um, people have, have, have fallen into a diagnosis, I don't know what, just a diagnosis train, and that they, they feel like they are really very unusual, and they have these diagnoses, and that their distress is like no others. And they, the, the whole family are buying this. And I'm like, I'm not convinced, is what I'm thinking at the beginning. I get to know the kid, and I'm like, I know, I get it. You're okay. You 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 know what I mean. It's it's there's nothing massive going on here. This is just distress, and it happens. And I think, in a way, the parents almost inflate it, and then the kid takes whatever the parent has told them, and they've inflated it, and it's not it's not helping them. But it's such a it's a tense thing to kind of try and straddle because you're you're kind of saying I do see the depths of your distress and I still think it's normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's a ten, tense thing to say. Yeah. And that's why I think stories and I I do do disclosure um and I I find disclosure from my wreckage of my teen years is always enlightening for them because they can see that I'm so comfortable with myself now. And they're like, like, you know, the message of it does get better. You do learn to like yourself. You know, you know, you really do. Yeah. They love it. They love, they're like almost kids getting a bedtime story when I say something. They kind of settle in. Oh, she's going to tell them one of her crazy stories. And they like it because it's kind of, okay, okay, there's a lot. And often one thing I do, which I find good, Maybe with kids with autistic traits, but maybe just with just any of the clients who come in, teenage clients, is we talk about their friendships and we talk about, I might say, oh, it sounds like, uh, let's say Mary, it sounds like Mary is having troubles of her own. And they'll say, oh, no, 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 I'm the one with the troubles. Everybody else is swimming along fabulously. And I'm like, "Mm, really? Because (laughs) then I'll, I'll point out a few points that she'll have told me. And you go, oh, yeah, 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 she had an eating disorder last Christmas, but it's over now. And I'll go, well, I find when there's an eating disorder, it, it tends to stay and there's a huge amount of trauma behind the smile. And I think when they realise, oh, my God, each of us in our group are having the horrors, they, they first of all, they at the start of therapy, they say, no, no, that's not true. They're all swimming. They're all swans. They're all delighted with life. And then in the middle, they're like, you know, you might be right, because Sansa was crying. And I asked her what was wrong, and she said she couldn't help, but she goes to a therapist. So maybe you're right. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I I do enjoy helping them have a deeper insight into their friendships and the characters of their friends. That's a good point. And, And it's kind of like having a sense of perspective that, you know, you're not the only one who's having a hard time. And I think this is, it's different from saying, for example, oh, you're just a teenager, you'll be fine. 
Yeah. Because they're still in the middle of it and it's very, very hard. So you still have to fully be there to um, accompany them with their, their suffering and their sorrow. And then again, you kind of have to dip in and out of like giving some perspective, maybe by talking about Mary's problems or maybe about thinking about times when things were different or there might be little moments in a, a person's life that they actually felt on top of it and good. And, you know, they, yeah. they oscillate back and forth between feeling okay and then not feeling okay. And that's very much normal um, yeah. for the teenager. One thing, one thing you raised there is something that's very important for people to know. I've found with, with working with people that, you know, they might come in and they might be really, really distressed about their gender. And then we might chat about that. And as weeks and mo- turn into months, they might move on and they're actually fine. Gender distress has left them and they're worrying about their relationships and maybe worrying about school. And, the, you know, we're, we're just rocking on and we're figuring our way around it and we're working together. And then something might happen, maybe nine months, and they might fall back into gender distress. And it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. And I, I, I kind of am at pains to say that's recovery. That's yeah. recovery from any sort of distress. You fall back in, especially during times of trauma, you fall back in. And that's to be expected. And it's not, I find people tend to be devastated. The family tend to be devastated and the individual. I like to point it out as something that could happen in the future early on. So that there's a kind of I can refer back and say, well, remember I said that these things do ebb and flow. Uh, look, it's ebbing and flowing. I think that can be quite helpful rather than thinking you got rid of that problem onward and upward. Forget about it and it'll never come back. That's yeah, not helpful. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think another um, question that I, I have that I'm interested to hear about is like, do you... Um, explicitly share your hypothesis with clients once you've reached a certain stage. So I'm thinking about, for example, a lot of overlapping issues that I see is like disordered patterns of eating, or this isn't an issue per se, but like giftedness, right? So if I have the right rapport with a client in this kind of middle chunk of therapy, I might say something like, you know, when, when I think about you shared with me that you used to struggle with eating, for example, it's interesting that there are some parallels with dysphoria. And I, I try to be careful. So I'll say it's not exactly the same, of course. But here are the ways that these are similar. And I'm wondering if you think that those feed into each other at all, or how, how does this affect you? So I will sometimes directly share a question like that, always tentatively, because we could always be wrong. And we don't want to make it, well, at least for me, most of the time I, I don't come off as though I'm some authority that has all the answers. Our, our goal is to explore together. But I will do something like that, whether it's about a child's giftedness and how they think through categories or problems or eating disorder or social anxiety and fitting in. So I will kind of ask what they think of my hypothesis and we'll explore that over time. Yeah, I do exactly that. And I, I have even, you know, uh, I suppose phrases that kind of I, I rely on, like things like I could be wrong or maybe I'm going wrong with this. But what do you think of this as an analysis of wh- where we're at? And do you know what I mean? And they are a genuine, I think, like one of the gifts I might bring to being a therapist is a genuine curiosity of what's going down here. And, I you know, I, I don't want to be proved right or wrong. I just want to get at it. <laughs> Do you know what is really going on? You know, 
And so that natural curiosity, I don't know if it's natural, it feels natural in me that I just genuinely, I don't want to be proved right. I just want to know where they're at. And so it's kind of, I'm genuinely asking in a curious way. And that's why exploratory therapy is such a good kind of um, description of it. But um, I, I do think that, you know, like therapy goes through ups and downs. It goes through peaks and troughs. And sometimes if the client is um, very politicized, that can be where it can be get, it can, the, the, my curiosity can be closed down with slogans. It's just the way I feel. That's because I'm trans. That's the way it is. And that's where I, I don't, I don't care what the closing down is. It's just, I feel my job as a therapist is to open up. And that that is what we're, that's our, our important job is that we, we open up and that we create a space that the client feels they can open up and they don't need to, to close anything down. And that can be reflexive if they're out in the world and they're defensive and protective. You can be reflexively closing things down. And then you can kind of, and this is where I prefer meeting one-on-one physically. And I've, I've been, you know, I've, I've, I've yielded to the Zoom and I'm pretty much almost always in Zoom. But there was something about the energy of the physicality of being in the room that they just melt in. Like, they get it. Like, we're together. Yeah. We're on a journey together. And it's, it's a warm journey. But yeah, it still happens with the Zoom, but it's it's. I think it's harder. Mm-hmm. It's harder to try to disconnect from one another. Is that what you mean? Like emotionally? It's hard. No, I mean it's harder to get beyond the slogans and stuff. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. You, you know, if you've got a politicized mindset who does not want to explore because they're protecting their coping mechanism, and if their coping mechanism is a politicized mindset, it can be hard to get the client to unfurl as easy when it's on Zoom. You know, it's just a an issue I've noticed. When I hear those types of answers to things, I I get the sense a lot of times that behind that is a real terror of being overwhelmed by the other person. So those are really protective mechanisms. So when I hear stuff like that, it tells me either this client doesn't really feel safe with me or that they're just so deeply in, engulfed in this worldview that they don't even know what they think. And so they're saying the answer. But I think a lot of times with, with time and with a slow unfolding, even the most kind of zealot client will eventually go beyond that with us. At least that's my experience. And I think it takes time. And it takes sometimes at, at certain stages of therapy, walking on eggshells in a way and, and avoiding landmines and not aggravating these political topics and getting in debates. That's why I think in the previous episode I said I, I avoid political conversations at all possible costs. And Absolutely. that's one of those things. I'll just kind of move around it and say, oh, "Here, that's that's a strong view of yours. That's okay. That's thanks for sharing." And then I'll just move on to somewhere else. Me too. Yeah. And one of the places I I like to move to. I know there was a great Carl Jung quote, and I can't think of it, but it's along the lines of broadening the person as opposed to narrowing the person. Yeah. And often I find that the clients, and you know, lots of us, I am that client. 
we look for single solutions to narrow. We look to narrow the problem, categorise the problem, single solution the problem, and off we go, delighted with ourselves. And our job as therapists is to unpick that and expand it and broaden it. But I like to give some tasks, depending on the client, but some tasks like to, you know, to, to broaden the horizons, to get outside. Yes. Getting outside is a big thing for me. And I find more and more there's less receptivity to that. Like lockdown, I was really, really hampered in my ability to say, you've got to be meeting people and you've got to be out. You've got to be out meeting them in real life. And they couldn't do that during COVID. And I thought it was a real lack in our therapeutic strategies because I think I want them to, you know, start horse riding, start rock climbing, maybe boating, um, gymnastics if they're if they're kind of that way inclined anything that kind of has challenges kind of physical challenges that aren't um gendered as such I'm really into and that's why there's a horse riding and boating and things like that and rock climbing they're the biggies for me that I I like to bring in I I think there's a certain kind of chunk of the gender questioning young people who are really dealing with body distress and some of them are more in like the identity and the politics and the social fitting in but some of them are really it's like an eating disorder just shifted over a couple of centimeters like that's how it feels to me this is not a far cry and for those young people I think many of them get a tremendous amount of relief from feeling like their body can accomplish things and they feel strong in their body or powerful in their body. And I think that's really, really important. And, and I, in general, I think, Stella, we're, we're saying that we're trying to broaden this young person's life. So we're thinking way beyond gender and we're trying to think about big picture, there, there's some underlying pattern that's going on. I mean, th- this is not usually just relegated to the realm of gender and then everything else in the life is perfectly functional. A lot of times there's some kind of underlying thread and if you pull it, everything kind of unravels. So I, I like to think big picture about the client's relationships and their um, kind of daily routines and how they manage school stress and family relationships and big picture thinking really helps to to broaden their sense of self. I find as well uh, for clients generally who have any gender related distress I find we we discuss their tech we discuss their online behavior we discuss whether it's making them happier and time and again I find that they'll say you know the first half an hour is brilliant and then I sink you know what I mean? Because I get them to be, that's quite CBT of me now, I think about it. I get them to pretty much track, well, how is your, tell me. So you go on YouTube, you're sitting on the couch and how does it go for you? What yeah. do you tend to, where do you tend to go? Where do you tend to scroll? And they basically talk about how they go like from 100 down to 80 to sinking, sinking low down to 10 and 5. Yeah. over that period and that's why I often think that it's sometimes the time spent on online as opposed to going online per se that they they go into this paralysis of of scrolling and um just kind of go into a dream world so I think I I in the in the attempts to broaden the focus get outside meet people I say and let's look at your tech hygiene let's not tech hygiene but tech behavior because very often it needs attention. 
And then when we've kind of organized their kind of what should be healthy tech, I tend to check in on it each week. Like, how's the tech? And they tend to see it quite quickly. I find one thing I get buy on quickly, buy in quickly with clients on this one is certain tech isn't very good for me. And I know it now yeah. I've talked about it. Yeah. And I need to be a bit wary of it. They know it's like junk food. Yes. And I think that's a perfect thing to bring up for this middle chunk of therapy because it's not, I find, it's not often helpful to go in with a lot of prescription. But once you're in this middle stage, it's very, very useful to start, I call them experiments. Like, you know, you mentioned that this is sometimes wastes lots of time in your day. Let's try an experiment and we'll come up with the parameters together or we'll kind of collaborate to devise some kind of plan that the the young person has bought into and they they have helped create the system and that can be really really useful and um i i think being able to offer the client a different perspective is something they eventually really crave and i know when you have a good relationship with a client they'll often come to you and they'll start asking well what do you think what do you think i yeah. should do and i think it takes a lot of um like referring back to the client in the early stages because they then trust that they're in the driver's seat. And then when they realize, oh, this therapist lady actually is helpful sometimes, then they will start to explicitly kind of ask for your opinion on things. Yeah. Then it can become, you know, there's an extraordinary arc that's very familiar to me as a therapist that suddenly they think, you're amazing, you're magical, you're brilliant. And I get a little bit intimidated by that and I have to lo- normalize who I am. There's a the kind of a feeling of they're over they're overlooking up to me. And I, I'm trying to bring myself down to oh, no, like I'm just a therapist and I just have 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 a way of working. And I find then they can be quite keen to co-opt me in what they want from their parents. And in what they want from the schools and kind of I'm having difficulty, you know, with my names and pronouns. Will you will you come over and do some talking there? And that's where my job is to kind of teach them about finding your strong voice, learning to speak up for yourself, learning to advocate for yourself. And I love doing just like you. I like we, we sound similar. Um, I like doing these experiments and often around I might point out that they are smiling when they're sad when they're sad they're saying yes when they mean no they're pretending to be happy when actually they're very unhappy and i wonder aloud whether it would be helpful to learn to say no to one person you know you know would that be helpful so i think finding their strong voice is a really powerful thing it's a real gift to give somebody who works with you and i i i like that's that's when I'm kind of saying there's a critical harsh voice, there's a kind of a, a, a strong voice that hasn't been given any space here, yeah, and yeah. has opinions and quite strong ones, and they're hidden under a cloak of oh I don't mind whatever whatever you like I'll do it I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kind of a yes person I don't cause trouble, and yet that that's that's big stage in therapy I think. And I mean, part of the way the therapeutic relationship works is that we create a microcosm of those dynamics in our relationship. Yeah. So so to get a client to use their strong voice, it might start with, you know, 
let's say you want to ch- change the time of your session and you yeah. ask the client, is that okay? And they're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's fine. And you go, yeah. no, we're going to really slow down with this and let's explore whether that's actually okay for you. And so you're creating this like meta opportunity to self-reflect on whether or not they really, really feel okay with it. And sometimes you know you've made a lot of progress in therapy when a very quiet, passive client corrects you. Or you make a reflection and they say, actually, no, I don't think it's that. It's more of this. And sometimes I'll go, wait a minute. This is really good. You just actually used your own voice or you shared your own opinion. And sometimes it's the relationship itself that offers an opportunity to experiment with the way a client's relating to the other people in their life or the world around them. And that can be interesting when you talk about their body language or their smile. They can be smiling when they mean, when I can mention that they seem to be smiling, but they're actually kind of sad. Yeah. And it does the smile betray them themselves? Are they honoring their emotions? And kind of, I, I think you're right. It's such an opportunity when they do it to us, to us, the therapists. They nod along. No, 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 whatever you like. I don't mind. And yeah, I like to as well, like specifically practice, like if they're always kind of talked down to by their siblings or by their parents and stuff, to notice it and to notice that they have become a quiet good girl for example and that's their persona and is that is that accurate and is it is it a deep enough analysis of who they are and kind of introduce them to that but I do also and this is it's tricky water but I think it's important that we raise it that when we see adolescence there's a sexual self that's developing and Thankfully, we're women. I don't know what it would be like as a male trying to trying to raise that with a teenage. I'd say it's very difficult, but I think we have more freedom as as women. That's completely sexist of me, I know. Um, so shoot me down here, Sasha. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure you're wrong. I'm not sure I disagree. What do you mean, okay. though? <laughs> I'm thinking that I like to when I know them well enough, to point out that between 10 and 20, a sexual self develops and that the world hasn't figured out how to operate with this. That at 10, there are no sexual self usually, and by 20, there is a sexual self. And that is a journey from 10 to 20. And we like to pretend that it just turns on at 18, but it doesn't. It comes in fits and stages between those years and we as a society haven't figured out how to handle it. It's quite pornified on one level. It, it lacks a lot of intimacy. There's an awful lot of really dark sexual behavior going on in, in, you call them high school, secondary schools. Like really, when I think about it, I remember a friend of mine, I was out for lunch, I must have been pre-COVID, maybe two years ago. And <laughs> or was, was this talking. a fantasy in, in your dreams <laughs> of having lunch with a person? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably just before COVID, but she was saying something amazing and I realized how common it was. She was saying, we were being sexually assaulted every day. They were just grabbing us. The boys were just grabbing us. And that was the culture of the classroom we were in. It was just grabby and it was hilarious. And yeah, I know it was awful. And I I, I hear stories about the schools and about like what what, what an awful lot of girls are are, are being subjected to. 
an awful lot of homophobic bullying, especially boys, are being subjected to. And I bring in what's it like to be a sexual yeah. evolving person? And can we give some space and time to this? And I do it gently. I don't want to be prurient, but I definitely want it noted. And I find um, a lot of the time the gender identity is subsuming and consuming yes. a, a sexual self. So I point out, well, where is the sexual self? They don't need to tell me about it, but where is it? Is it, you know, where is it? And I can see that, I think, gives them pause for thought because they have themselves down as an edgy, positive, sex positive person. But there's very little sex going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's so fascinating. I just want to say this episode could almost be mapped onto our adolescent development episode because those are all areas that I think are really crucial that we end up working on in this middle chunk of therapy. And you're right that the sexual self is very important. I think the, for me, one of the benefits of working long-term with clients is that you can see how this unfolds. This is another one of those subjects that can feel kind of like a landmine at certain moments. So maybe when you, you know, first meet a kid and they're 14 and you bring this up and they really shut down and they, maybe they say, I identify as asexual. And that's kind of a big red flag or big red sign of like, no, 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 we're not talking about (laughs) this. (laughs) No entry. And then, you know, sometimes things unfold and you start to see that, okay, this, this young person maybe is curious about this. And I try to approach this, if I notice there's a lot of resistance to discuss it, I try to approach it from the side. And so that might look like, you know, are are a lot of your peers at school talking about sex stuff? What are they saying? Okay, how do you feel when you overhear those conversations? And that can kind of give you a sense of where this young person is. And you might explore, uh, I often will say, when did you have the sex talk with your parents? What was that like? And so this is a way of kind of gauging where is this young person with the sexuality conversation. And and I think it's very important to discuss. And a lot of times there's such a great deal of shame about the body and about the, the pressure to like be sex positive sometimes goes counter to what feels intuitively right for that individual person. And so I think it's very, very confusing. And I, I don't really know what it's like to grow up in such a porn accessible world where, where the imagery and the kinds of things they see go way beyond like a playboy photo shoot or something. I mean, these are really graphic images. So I think it makes it really hard because when you even say sexuality or talking about sex, in their mind, all of this extra baggage comes up that that's not what I mean when I say that. No. So they yeah. they don't even have a proper schema around what does that even mean to say, yes, I'm developing a sense of sexuality. I think they associate it with all kinds of very exaggerated kind of sometimes scary or really bizarre things that is not necessarily what I mean when I ask about their sexual development. And there is a difference when you're talking to um, maybe... Um, one child to another it's very individualized so one person might be shut down sexually so it's looking at you very kind of almost intellectually there they are talking about sex and 
you know, they're on a different, they're completely intellectualizing it. And somebody else can be really like quite pornified, maybe masturbating a lot in a very deep kind of pornographic kind of world. And when I bring it up, I can see that that's where they're going. They're going, they're going to deep, dark porn. Yeah. And I'm I'm talking about things like intimacy and really liking somebody and connecting with them, and it can be very beautiful. And they're they're kind of going, huh, as in <laughs> they, they they don't really see that side. And when you can tap into that and talk about it well enough, and they realise there's a whole other side. There's a whole other side, rather than thinking, oh yeah, online sex is great actually falling for somebody and having a laugh with them and then connecting with them physically is just magical. And being able to get that point over, it does require skill and and a gentleness. You can't go too heavy into it too quickly because it's, it's a landmine, isn't it? Yeah, it's really difficult. And maybe you'll cover this more in, in our episode on the body or something like that. Um, yeah. I wonder, uh, what about working with highly kind of rigid or indoctrinated clients? What are your thoughts? I talked a bit about that, but how do you approach that? Very gently. And I, I want to emphasize like some, this, this therapy can last years, you know, and I, I don't think that's being said enough. That this is a long, long relationship. And if they're indoctrinated, I'm going as gently as a kitten. You know what I mean? I'm just working slowly and surely, just gently, gently, so that they realize they have somebody that they can go to where they can kind of slowly but surely um, air their thoughts. And they might go back to the kind of indoctrination. And I would just, my job, I would argue, is to expand and say, yeah, that's true, but there's also other elements to you. Do you know what I mean? So they go back to the indoctrination. I go back to the expansion. They go back to the indoctrination. I go back to the expansion. But I do it very gently. And I, I there's a lot of me nodding along, just kind of letting it be, just thinking, yeah, that's where they're at right now. And I, I need to hold space with that. And I, I need to not hurry this because the world's in a hurry. And I think my hardest challenge there is not to hurry it. Just to just slow that whole thing down. That's where I go with it. Yeah, and... It's worth mentioning, I guess, at this point that as a therapist who's holding kind of an interesting tension, on one hand, I mean, I think anybody who listens to me or has read what I've written knows that I believe very strongly that there's a kind of medical scandal happening. And so there's this kind of fact that I've come to after years of doing this work, which is terrifying, literally terrifying. And on the other hand, the truth is we are working with young people who might and some will and have medicalized. And so you are holding a really difficult space because you have to um, know what you know while staying with the client where they're at. And that doesn't mean that I never offer challenges or try to educate clients on the facts of what's happening. And I think even most of my clients who have medicalized would know that I I often say, I don't envy dysphoric people these days because the, the science out there is so confusing and so poor quality that it's impossible to know what you're doing is safe. So, so like people know that I hold that view 
But in the context of a, a therapy session, it can be very challenging to work with a population that you feel is doing something that may be very, very unsafe for themselves. And when do you tell them that w- your views on it? It trickles out slowly throughout the therapy. Mm. I mean, I think in the initial phases of therapy, I, I express clearly that I'm not going to treat you like a walking gender identity. I think you're a whole person. And I think that dysphoria is very complicated. And we're going to approach a therapy together from a place of our job is to help you feel good about your life as a whole. So th- I think they understand that. And as we talk about, you know, medical things, especially, you know, just maybe to pull in a, a strategy here, sometimes I'll look at the Gender Care Consumer Advocacy Network website with clients. It's very um, pro-individuals uh, who are pursuing trans health care, but it's very honest about the lack of data and the complications that can be involved. And I really love that website. It's, it's a brilliant resource. I don't know it. Oh, I, it's great. Yeah. I'll include it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, clients, clients, depending on the situation, I think most clients care or are glad to have a therapist who cares enough to say, look, I respect that it's your choice as an adult what you do. And on the other hand, I feel it's unfair that right now the picture's so muddy. So let's try to sort through this together. Yeah, I I would be the same as you. It would trickle out insofar as I kind of frame where where I am with gender. And I often talk about just how difficult it is to feel alienated from from yourself and from your body. And then I kind of focus on expanding on the person and getting to know the person. And I, I don't, you know, the, I often see almost I'm trans as as almost a, it's a reducing of the person. And you, you know what I mean? We're, we're more than that. And so that's, I suppose that would be the biggest way I would handle an indoctrinated person. That if they were indoctrinated, they were completely narrowed to one thing. I think it's important to expand. And and just to touch on that experience as a therapist, how do you find it to be when you know something that you know and yet you see your client moving in a direction that you feel is really risky? Because I, I just yeah. think that's emotionally taxing on the therapist. I know I sometimes it is. feel and you know, really we, wiped. We therapists have, have done this in many different contexts, like I've had so many different clients, let's say with an eating disorder and they slip back in and we talk about the slipping back in and they might miss a few uh, sessions because they know they're being, you know, whatever, negative around food, but they'll come back and I know they'll come back and they know they'll come back and there's an ups and downs and topsy-turvy process of recovery. And it's the same with, I know, with clients who, who might have a drink problem and the very same kind of arc. And yet when it's gender, because it's so politicized, it can feel a little bit more, um, a little bit more landminey, a little bit more that I could offend and I, I need to be very careful here. So I, 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 I pull back that little bit and I give more time to the child with gender. I just give more time for, for everything. 
And I wouldn't be so quick to say that a relapse is happening, for example. I wouldn't use those words. I would say, oh, I can see distress is building up again. Wonder what prompted that? Where did that come from? And um, I, I, yeah, I, I, there's, I have a wariness that I, I would rather I didn't have, but I think it's really important that I do have so that I don't offend people in a time and in a culture that takes offence very powerfully. It's it's not it's not like it was twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you explore with the client what gender dysphoria is? I do. Yeah, I do. Do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, what's really interesting, and and this is what I find so frustrating about the trans activist narrative, is that I have met very very few young people who actually buy the trans activist narrative hook, line, and sinker. I mean, I think most young people, once they've had, you know, several months or a couple of years of being trans and thinking about gender dysphoria, they know it's more complicated than the picture that is painted. And even like the young people that I know, none of them agree with puberty blockers. And yeah. they all, you know, may identify as trans and think, you know, health care for trans is important. But, like, there are all of these political ideas that simply do not reflect, I think, what actual gender dysphoric or trans or desisted or detransitioned people think. But are we seeing the clients that want the puberty blockers? Is that a bi- our biased sample? Because I'm the same. I, I have kids who freely say to me, well, I'm not going to medicalize until I'm an adult anyway. It's just I want my social transition. And I'm I'm very satisfied with that, if you follow me. But is that a biased sample we're seeing? I don't know, because I just think that developmentally speaking, it's like 13-year-olds want puberty blockers, and then maybe a bunch of super political adults want puberty blockers. But everybody in between... If you take five seconds to think about it, realizes this is probably a bad idea. And I mean, that's not to say that families going through the medical system can't be really manipulated by the doctors and and professionals there. But I just think that in general, even working with clients who have some kind of political or ideological bias, they still have more nuanced and complicated views than I think a lot of people give them credit for. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to finish up with on the middle section of counselling, behind the curtain of the <laughs> middle section? You know, um, I think we've we've covered it. I mean, we bounced around, but I think that's the nature of therapy. I mean, that's definitely how it feels for me. So I think this was really interesting and it was nice to hear about how you work with clients in this middle section. I think you're right. I think our bouncing around is exactly how it happens. It's, it's, it's very individualistic. It depends on the person. It can go one way, it can go another way. And somebody who's um, mathematical or or a certain type of brain, they just think, what sort of flake is going on there? They're talking, rambling, and we're not. We're, we're just getting to know the whole big person, and it's generally massive. What's going on in somebody's head is just so much is going on, and that's what we try to do when we meet them. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. 
This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 